0: Episode 219, Hank Levine, CEO of iPlace USA.
1: Well, okay, so I would prefer not to call them mistakes. I would prefer to
0: call them learning experiences. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Hank, his company, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake219. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. Our guest today is Hank Levine. He is the president and CEO of iPlace USA. They are a global recruitment process outsourcing company. Hank has 39 years of experience in areas including sales, business development, marketing, and general management. He created the marketing and business strategies for six companies, four of which were acquired for a total of $92 million. Hank has twice reinvented his career, as he puts it. So, before heading offshore recruiting firms, he held senior management positions in venture capital backed technology companies. The first phase of his career was with um, some cutting edge home automation and telecom firms. So, uh, Hank holds a bachelor's in engineering. Um, so, it's good to talk to another engineer from uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And he has a master's degree in management from the Sloan School. At MIT, so we have that Sloan connection in common. So, with uh, with that, Hank, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: Doing fantastic, Mike. It's an honor to be on your podcast.
0: Oh, well, thank you for being here. And I, I know we're going to have a lot of interesting things um, to talk about. And we'll come back to this later. I've I've heard one of your favorite mistake stories. I don't know if that's the one or kind of two stories that you're going to share today. So uh, maybe we'll just jump right into it. You know, the the different things you've done, different facets and phases of your career, Hank, what would you say is at least a favorite mistake?
1: Well, okay. So I would prefer not to call them mistakes. I would prefer to call them learning experiences. So I'm going to go back real early in my career. There's actually two that I thought of because these were things that profoundly changed how I think about management and how I interact with people. So we can go into two of them. Right.
0: Yeah, go go. Yeah, and I and I do appreciate that. I mean, you know, the spirit here on the podcast is, you know, is to celebrate the learning, you know, not to shame anybody for the mistakes. So, um, yeah, go go ahead with uh with that first story, Hank.
1: Okay, so the first one this goes way back into the late nineteen eighties. So I'm aging myself a bit on that one, but uh, this was my first company out of business school. It was a very fun company called Custom Command Systems. And we uh, were developer and installer of very comprehensive, very expensive, high-end home automation systems. And uh, we worked, you know, throughout the country and even some internationally in, in very, very large homes. And I was uh, I was one of the founders of the company, and initially I did all the sales. And these were very elaborate systems. So when we sold them, we put together these beautiful bounded proposals. They were full of pictures. Uh, we, you had to be a good writer to put these proposals together because we tried to personalize them, talk about our clients' home, talk about all the things that made their homes distinctive. And I was pretty successful at selling these systems, you know, using using this elaborate proposal. Um, then we got a little bit bigger. So the, these systems were quite expensive, typically sold between two and $300,000. So in today's dollars, that would be over a half million dollars. We were up to about selling about 10 systems a year. We were growing nicely. So we hired our first other salesperson. And I hired this uh, gentleman named Chris. He was just a great guy. He was working for this uh, national audio-video home-wide system installer. And Chris had just a great personality, a really big personality. Everybody totally loved him. But it turned out that Chris was not a very good writer. And I was trying to have Chris do things my way, where we had this elaborate proposal. You had to write very well to make the proposal good. And Chris just couldn't do it. And I kept reworking his proposal. And in my mind, Uh, Chris was failing. Um, We had a second employee. Her name was Dana. Dana was our accountant. She was very smart. She was meticulous as could be, very organized, a very good writer. And she was great at accounting. But being that we were a startup, of course, cash flow is very, very critical. And one of Dana's jobs was that she had to call people and make sure that we were being paid on time. Dana was to this day, maybe the most shy person I've ever met. She was even so shy that she couldn't really talk well to people within her own company. And the thought of her calling clients and asking for money was just <laughs> something she could not do. Mm-hmm. And I would tell her over and over, that's an important part of our job. Cash flow is so critical. Please do it, please do it. She just wouldn't do it. Okay. So in my mind, you know, she was partially failing too. Mm-hmm. And then something amazing happened. So Chris went out to a new client of ours to present our proposal. So this was a client in Palm Springs, California. He was coming from our home base in, in Maryland. And in those days, this was before cell phones. So whenever Chris would go out and present a proposal, right after the, the meeting was over, he would go somewhere, he would find a pay phone, and he would call me, and he would tell me how it went. So I was expecting that he would be done about five o'clock California time, about eight o'clock time, And I'm waiting, I'm waiting for Chris to call me. No call, no call. Gets to 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. I figure Chris is on the red eye. He must be coming back. I'll talk to him tomorrow. About 1130, I get this phone call. And it's Chris. And I say, Chris, I was waiting for your call. You know, where are you? What's happening? He goes, well, you wouldn't believe it. The, The meeting went great. The client loves this, they're going forward, and we really hit it off. We're having such a great relationship that they asked me to stay over for the weekend, and I'm calling you from their swimming pool. Now, this was four cell phones, right? So to do this, he was calling on a cellular phone. It's one of the first cellular phones in the country. Again, we had very wealthy clients. The cellular phones in this day, they had a receiver that was like in a big suitcase. The phone itself was like a big 12-inch block. Costs about three dollars a minute to make a phone call, and he's calling me from their swimming pool, telling me that they asked him to stay at their house with them until Sunday. So that just blew my mind because I could never imagine any client liking me so much (laughs) that they would invite me to stay for the weekend. And I just realized that Chris has this special skill where he can relate to people; he can build relationships so much better than i can that Monday, he came back to our office and i had this brainstorm i said chris and dana i am making you guys a team dana's a great writer she is going to write all your proposals for you but you'll go out and build the relationships and present them and chris you can you could deliver the worst news to, to anyone in the world and they would love you they would take you out for a beer and all these collection calls you will do her collection calls." (laughs) <laughs> and they both loved it. Yeah. They, the thing they hated doing, we took it off their plate. They worked together great as a team, and they were both phenomenally successful. And so from that point on, I, I just realized that I was really messing up because I was trying them to force them to do things how I would do it, doing you know things that I'm good at or things that didn't bother me. And I wasn't building on their strengths. And once I let them do things that they love and put on their strengths, they, they flourish. And so now, now whenever I put a team together, I first start with thinking about the team members, what they're good at, and completely develop the process around their strengths. Wow.
0: That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great story. You make me think of, yeah, this idea of the right fit. I mean, I'm sure, you know, with with we'll, we'll come back and talk about, um, I place. I mean, I imagine that's a a question for clients. So finding the right fit. Like you have a lot of good people that might just not be a good fit for a certain role. And, and that's a, that's a really vivid example of uh, of discovering it in that business. I'm, I'm, and like you said, that that's carried forward that concept carried forward with you into other roles, other leadership positions. Can you think of any other any examples of kind of putting that into practice.
1: Uh, you, you, <laughs> There's a great one, and I place that on that uh, our, our EVP of strategy, he was uh, originally a, a recruiter. He's a, one of the smartest people I've ever met. He, he has a brilliant analytical mind, a brilliant business mind. And when he started with us as a recruiter, he wasn't very good because he was just too analytical. He would study everything. He wouldn't submit candidates because they weren't perfect. He would, you know, he would actually draw charts. He was showing probabilities of placements. And I would I would tell him, just submit the candidate. Just submit the candidate. And uh, we, we had a leadership development program where he blew everyone away. He did all this research. He was, but he was just so analytical. So we started a data analytics team and he created this system for iPlace called Launchpad, which is a whole gamification system for how we run the the company. And when we put Fred into the right seat, we took him out of being a recruiter and let him do things that were analytical and business strategy, Mm -hmm. he's just been
0: phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, a leadership challenge there, a general business challenge of um, trying to figure out if somebody's not performing in a certain role, if you can't coach them up in that role, do you is it better off for everybody to, do they need to leave the organization or can you find a different role that's a better fit? If you like the person, their attitude, you know you 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 want them to be part of the team. you know I wonder how often leaders would just give up on somebody as opposed to finding a better fit?
1: Well, if you're a really tiny company and you don't have flexibility in roles, maybe. But in my view, there there are very few people that don't want to be great employees. Right? People want to be like, they want to be respected. They want to feel smart, important, and valued. And if you find someone that is smart... And that person is working hard. That person is not being successful in their job. Nine out of ten times, you can make them successful if you get to know them, you get to know what they love, and you put them in the right position. Mm-hmm. Not always, but yeah. almost
0: always. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, your your story about Chris and Dana is one I've heard at least once from a previous guest. In terms of you know a founder wanting others to do it, do the work. In the way that worked for them and in in trying to force that fit and you know i appreciate you sharing you know that that lesson learned and 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 partnering chris and dana i mean like for that client in palm springs did did chris sell the deal without such a fancy proposal like I, i could see the idea of pairing them up but i'm just curious did you ever experiment with like was such a fancy proposal really needed
1: uh, well, it it was because you know these were so expensive and our proposals were good, yeah. and they were great. But that one, I wrote the proposal. I wrote most of it. <laughs> but after that, Dana wrote the proposals for him.
0: Okay, so Chris did. Okay, he did have the benefit of your partnership, but as a founder and doing other things, you you needed to be working on your own deals. Otherwise, yeah. hiring Chris, you know, if you were pairing up, um, why why hire another salesperson? You were trying. Yeah, to I mean, that was.
1: You know, wrongly on my part, I was probably resentful because I would have Chris do the first proposal. It it wasn't it wasn't very good. The writing wasn't good, and I would j- generally just redo the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when Dana got in the picture, I barely touched it.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, hey, as that company grew, did, did you scale? Like, you know, how many salespeople did did you find other salespeople that maybe had both skill sets, or was that pairing up model? Something that you kept using.
1: Uh, we 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 when we sold the company, we had three salespeople. Uh, this wasn't a large volume company. Sure. But um but you know, Dana Dana was overseeing things, you know, doing the writing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. um there there's there a second story. I, I assume Chris and Dana, that that would the two of them yeah. that was so, there's a second story coming, right?
1: Yeah, so after we we, uh, sold custom command systems, I had my first time working in a very, very large company. So this was a a huge telecommunication company, and they were uh, working in this very large joint venture with four other companies to develop a video service that was supposed to compete with the cable companies. And the cable companies were starting to get into telephony. And so they thought, well, we'll get them back. We'll get into we'll get into video. And a big part of their system was a television-based user interface that would be, you know, run through a remote control. And it turned out, you know, I was hired to do, you know, the project management. So this was about a two billion dollar project. And I was running the project management. But I knew a lot about user interfaces because mm-hmm. I came custom command where we built touch screens. Yes. And and,
0: well, and and for for context, like what was the timing of this? Was this very early days of on-screen yes. interfaces? I mean, I remember back even into the 90s you'd flip channels and you might see the channel number and that's it.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So custom command was in the late 80s and this was in the early 90s. Okay. All right. so um so even though I was, you know, supposed to be doing project management, I had all this knowledge in my head from custom command. You know, we control things with remote controls, we control things with touchscreens. I knew how to build this interface, so I wrote this eighty-page specification on my own time, and then I went around telling everybody how my user interface was so much better. That I had this real-world experience. I knew how people use this stuff, and we should. Replace the one that this team is building with mine. Yeah. And,
0: mm.
1: and I was sure mine was better. And it probably yeah. was better. <laughs> right? yeah. so, but that wasn't your job. That wasn't my job. So yeah. One day, I get this message that the EVP of the company wants to meet with me. And I admit this guy probably one time. He reported to the CEO of the company. So I go into his office. And he says, Hank, I'm sitting, I wanted to talk to you because I like you. And I've heard really good things about you i heard that you're really smart i hear that you're a really hard worker but i'm also here to tell you that you're very close to getting fired and i was amazed by that how could i be really close to getting fired so he he takes out this piece of paper and he draws two dots he labels one a one b and he goes i want you to show me but the fastest way is to get from point a to point b so i wasn't really sure what was happening but i did the obvious thing i drew a straight line from (laughs) <laughs> point a to point b right. and he says well if that's how you do things in this company you'll get fired so then he draws four more dots he draws and he goes on c d e and f And he goes here's how you get from a to b in this company so he goes to a and he draws the line to b and the c and the d then the e and and finally you know F to back back to b and he goes In this company, if you just forge ahead and go from A to B, there's all these decision makers. There's all these people with big egos. You're going to be encroaching on their budgets. You're going to be encroaching on their turf. They will gang up with you, and they will make sure what you're doing never happens, and you can get fired, even if you're doing a great job. And I sat there. I have to tell you, my first reaction coming out of my startup uh, was, what a terrible company, what a big bureaucracy this is. I can't, you know, that's why they can't make decisions. But then I thought about it more and I realized he was absolutely correct because to be a leader, you absolutely have to have followers and you can't just command people to follow you. you know, this is what I call the the curse of the expert. I had a lot of expertise because I came from right. this world, um, but nobody knew I had this expertise. They didn't know what I understood. They all came with their own beliefs, and uh, you know, these very senior people had hired this user interface group. These people were supposed to be, you know, very good at their job, and I'm essentially telling them that their decisions were all wrong. Yeah, and I was better. And yeah. and they don't know why I would say that. Oh, uh, they, you know, I was just a problem for them. And so, you know, the more I thought about it, I you know, realized that again, you can't be a leader without followers. And I see business leaders make this mistake all the time where I really see it was like with politicians because politicians might be an expert in some, you know, arcane policy area and they write a bill and they suspect, you know, because they know more, they expect everyone to get on board. And people don't get on board. They all have their political agenda. They all have their own beliefs. And so to, you know, get things to work, you know, you you, you really, um, you do have to socialize your ideas. Mm-hmm. Developing followers is hard work. And yep. it's not, and you won't go from A to B if you do it. You have to go to the other points. But if you don't bring followers along, you're not leading anybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about the curse of the expert, the curse of you know the great technical education. Um, I, I and 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 then trying to navigate, like you said, being a founder in a startup versus coming into a huge corporation—very different environments. And you know, it sounds like thankfully that EVP was willing to um, try to educate you around the you know the, the reality of the politics of that situation mm. you know, thing i was going to share you know having you know technical education and having fallen into um you kind of a similar pattern especially early in my career maybe even sometime today hopefully i'm learning from that but um you know I, I i there's times where i you know complain to my wife who also has a technical education but she has a, a higher a eq emotional intelligence i think and um might uh, I think I know, but I would say, oh, like, oh, I hate politics. And she'd say, like, that's the reality. You you can't hate the politics. You can't wish it wasn't there. You have to navigate the politics. So, you know, good good coaching from her. I think easier said than done for me. But yeah, that was the reality.
1: Yeah, and the, and the ironic thing at the time, I didn't really appreciate the EVP's advice, but now I super appreciate it. And you know, one of the things I realized that in startups, you. This problem isn't as common because you have your founding team and you're all in a room working together and you and you collectively develop your expertise. So you have that shared understanding. But if you take someone out of that startup and you put them in a big company, nobody else there has that understanding. And so you really do have to socialize it to get everyone at a, at, you know, a common level where they can move forward.
0: Yeah. So then. So what happened? You had your proposal year. You had your ideas to did any of that move forward as a result of better navigating this or did the bureaucracy say, no, you know, Hank, thank you, but we already have a plan.
1: Well, I stayed more in my lane, but I did make friends with some of the people in the user interface team. You know, we started, uh, they changed their development and process a little bit, you know, based on some of my recommendations being, you know, more rapid prototyping, iterative development. And I think that, uh, over time, you know, I, I still had their, I wasn't really pushing this, but I still had an open dialogue with them. And I think a bunch of my ideas to get into this design, but maybe not as much as I would have liked them
0: to. Sure, sure. And then, you know, did, did you end up in a situation, Hank, where the tables had turned at some point where you were more in that position, like the EVP giving advice or counsel to somebody who is younger who might have been making some form of that same mistake?
1: Well, I think both these stories are things that I, you know, try to mentor people on all the time. When I when I talk to them now, and you know, certainly in iPlace, um, you know, iPlace is interesting because um, you know we have about 950 employees, but I'm the only person in the U.S. So our employees are in India and in the Philippines, and uh, but we have a very you know Western work culture and very uh, western understanding and it's you know we really very very much encourage people to, to speak up and express their ideas not not stay in their lane but at the same time be politically aware so i hope that you know the stories i just told are things that are pretty much in our work culture and i think, I think they are
0: yeah yeah or Keep working at that, and how how would you how would you uh, um, help diagnose or understand the reality of, of of your goal for the culture versus what's actually happening? Are are, are there some ways where you sort of try to gauge? Are, are are other leaders sharing that viewpoint that you have about encouraging people to speak up, making it safe to speak up, viewing mistakes as learning opportunities? Like, how, how do you gauge? whether others are kind of following your lead on that?
1: Well, we, um, you know, I think most companies have core values. <laughs> they're on their website, and I think most of the times they're BS because in my experience is that with most companies, if they're in a situation where they have the option of following their core values but making less money in the short run or ignoring their core values and taking the money, most companies take the money. But uh, from day one, in, in fact, the very first thing we did in in iPlace. So this is going back to 2006. We had uh, four employees, but we had two clients signed up because there were people I knew who were doing me favors, not because we were, you know, we were a brand new company. So I can't even say we weren't good. We didn't even have anything. <laughs> sure. Um, so on the first day of the company. I think you know, everybody knew that we had these two clients. They were starting in two weeks. We had two weeks to get our act together. And I think everyone thought we were going to go to the whiteboard and draw a recruiting process and do mock calls and practice and practice. But we didn't do that. We spent the whole first day about the type of company we wanted to be, what our values should be, what would make people feel that this was a really special company where they were going to build something bigger than they could build individually and we have always put our core values first everybody knows it Uh, we have a lot of cool things like one of the things we have in our company is we have an i pledge wall so it's a big wall where we have all our core values written and every six months we do a presentation on our core values and everyone in the company goes and signs the i pledge wall to reaffirm their commitment to it and um so uh we will always we will always follow our
0: core values, even if it means we're losing money in the short run. Mm, wow. And you said, I mean, that's great to hear. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Hank. Some some companies would yeah, just you know, they want the statement that sounds good on the website. Sometimes healthcare organizations do the same thing, but is it really lived? intentionally and consistently. But you, know, you said earlier, Hank, and I thought this was really powerful. i um, paraphrasing a bit. To be a leader, you have to have followers. You can't just tell people what to do. I mean, how, you know, as, as CEO, um, tell, tell us more about that. I mean, I'm guessing the idea applies. You can't just tell people they need to follow the core values or how, how, how do you gain followership amongst your employees?
1: Well, I think a lot of it comes from an example, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, one of the things that, you know, we have the value, a lot of companies integrity, you know, we've been in business 17 years. We have never, ever paid a bribe, you not know, one rupee. Now that might not sound so amazing to Americans. If you're running a company in India for 17 years, that's pretty spectacular. But if a vendor tries to bribe us, they are fired on the spot. And they're, they're told that. Uh, the government in India, and especially the local government, will frequently look for bribes. Usually, though, they'll, they'll tell you you're going to get a big fine. But if you talk to a consultant, it can be solved for a lot lower money, and they'll tell you who to talk to. Uh, we've had cases like that. We never do it. We'll fight it forever. And uh, you know, they now now we're pretty much left alone. But it's it's more than that. Um, you know, we have. a we we have a core value of respect. We've had two cases where we had clients where we're being very disrespectful to our recruiters. You know, literally swearing at them, calling them names. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fired both of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we lost money when we did that. Right. I mean, who's going to treat our employees that way? Yeah. Um, so you know that that goes. That spreads through the company real fast when you do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like one of these situations where there's a short-term cost, you lose some business, but the long-term benefit is powerful in terms of um, employees being loyal to iPlace and, and, and helping reinforce that culture. Would you, would you agree it's a matter of like thinking, not just doing the right thing, but thinking long-term?
1: Uh, I would agree, you know, I'm a little more experienced now. I would agree that I would like to believe that, but I'm not sure that's actually the case. I've seen a lot of unethical companies do very, very well and make a lot of money. Um, at the end of the day, it really comes down to how you want to conduct yourself and what you believe in. And there's things more important than money, at least to me. Uh so I would rather conduct myself the way I'm proud of, and make less money. So, so I, I used to I used to tell this story when my you know about when uh, my my I have two daughters and when they were very very little, and and um, at the you know every night we did this ritual where they would they would just like be in their bed screaming at, you know daddy 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 give me a keppy kiss a keppy is your forehead so i would so i would go and i'd give them these kisses on their forehead and they would go do it again do it again and i would do it and do it do it again and you know when it came to ethical issues you know these were my little angels and you know my test to myself was when i'm sitting in their room giving my little girls keppy kisses if they understood what i did at work that day and how i conducted myself would they be proud of their daddy? And if the answer is no, then you're not doing it right. Even even if you're making more money, getting the no answer. So I don't so I don't actually believe that companies are more ethical do better in the long run. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I do believe that, you know, doing better doesn't just mean making more money. Sure.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. And you know, I I wasn't. I didn't form the question real clearly. I, I wasn't necessar- necessarily suggesting. Um, I, I, I was trying to apl- uh, think of more your situation, that you are doing the right thing and there's short-term loss. And I admire, and, and it's, it's great to stand by those values, but I was saying like for you and for your companies, the long-term benefit, it seems like would far outweigh any short-term hit of losing a client or, you know, um, it's, it's, it's just, it goes hand in hand. And I'm saying I'm not saying for all companies that being more ethical would lead to more success, but it, it seems like in your situation, it's it's hand in hand. It's maybe less of a trade-off over the long-term.
1: Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And I think the best you know, piece of evidence of that is just our management team. I mean, if you look at our top 15 people, it's just like every one of them has been with us over 10 years, and most of them are working a night shift. All right. So, you know, that's not – it's not the type of thing where you know people work night shifts and stay with the company ten and fifteen years. But almost our whole management team has done that. So they, you know, they they believe in what we're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to share a little bit for the audience. I mean, you know, uh, in terms of leading by example and and how I was able to see you do that, Hank. Um, you know, for the audience' sake, I my first exposure to EyePlace was being invited. Um, I want to thank Akil for, for doing that and helping me through the process, um, inviting me to, to give a short presentation for an internal iPlace event, uh, a knowledge sharing session. And so I was invited to talk a little bit about learning from mistakes and some of my reflections and and, and thinking about how do we create this culture. You know, I didn't really know up until fairly you know i don't know a couple of days before the session or you know that that you were going to be part of it hank and um the structure of the session by akiel was really good of keeping my presentation short and opening space for people within iPlace to share a favorite mistake story and i appreciated that you went first you told that story from the the telecom company so you know i, I was curious your reflections around you know, going your thought process of of going for sharing that story. You know what what example you would hope that that sets and the influence that has on the culture of not just the story, but your willingness to share.
1: Sure. Well, so the knowledge sharing session is you know that is actually something that a kill came up with, and you know he he created that so he's our EVP of, of business transformation another really really smart guy and uh, you know we and, and so knowledge sharing is one of our core values created on day one and so you know so when Akil came up with this idea of bringing in thought leaders and business experts from really all over the globe we, we do one of these sessions every uh, two months There are they're, they're Done over Zoom. They're not mandatory that people attend, but we have probably about 85% attendance. Uh, most of the people who don't attend, we have a big team that's in Australian stuff. So they're you're right in the middle of their sleep hours. So sometimes they don't attend and so forth, but we get very good attendance. And the cool thing about these sessions are that they're not they're not about recruiting. All right. So they're usually about um. You know how to be a better leader, better manager. Uh, how to do with health and well-being, and and so I think the you know our employees really appreciate that that you know this isn't immediately directly related to their job. It's really to you know make them not only better employees but 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 um, better people. I thought it was important to go first. Because we always tell people that they're hired for their brain. They were hired because they were smart. And if they have great ideas and they stay in their brain and they don't share them and they don't do anyone any good. And that, you know, my belief is that mistakes are not mistakes if you learn from them if you learn from them they're, they're an investment. and so I you know try to make it safe for people to admit their mistakes especially if you know show how they've learned from them what they're doing differently. and so I thought it was important to go first to just make it a little bit more of a safe space for, for people to speak up. Yeah, and I do think yeah. we have a culture where that happens very regularly.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I remember you saying some of those same things in that session to your team, and um, I thought that was really powerful. Like, you know, this idea of um, if you learn from them, it's an investment. The mistake can be an investment. The learning is an investment, as opposed to being just a cost. You know, I thought I thought that was great, and then you know, yeah, I've, you know, four, five, six people. I think you know there was time for other people to share stories, and I thought your reactions to to the stories were um, were very, you know, were kind and, and constructive. And you know, I, I I told you when we we chatted um, you know privately afterwards that that your body language and attentiveness came through very clearly, even through a little Zoom window. And whether your employees noticed, I, I'm sure they did. Like, I thought, you know, it wasn't even just what you said in terms of thanking them for sharing the story, but like I, that, that was noticeable. And, and I thought that was a, another great example of um, leading by example.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, and we also, you know, besides our external speakers, if anyone at iPlace wants to present to the company, they can do that. So we've had, I think, three cases where we just had employees, not generally the most senior employees, and they just go and they talk about, you know, something that they've done in recruiting and how it's helped them. And they these sessions are usually shorter, maybe 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, but, you know, we bring the whole company in. And, uh, you know, we try very hard to reinforce that. You know, we have these shout outs that you can do to the whole company and, You'll see after someone does that, they get probably 20 shout-outs from people just saying how great it was that they had the courage to talk about that in front of the whole company.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I want to thank you, Hank, um, you know, from that internal session, uh, for giving me permission to share a little bit of your story and you know, especially that that thought about learning from mistakes as an investment I'm holding up. This is just a mock-up, but um, you know, for, for the book, the mistakes that make us, you know, thank you for allowing me to include some of that. And, you know, for today, not just sharing your own favorite mistake story, but to have this opportunity to, to delve into, um, you know, culture and what you're, what you're doing there at iPlace. You know, I think that's um, that, that's, that's a great example. And I'm happy that you could share your thoughts around all of that here today too. Well,
1: as I mentioned to you, when you, Asked me permission to be, have a short section in your book, I I was, I was shocked and, and, and so flattered. And of course, you know, now we'll buy 900 copies for our employees. That was not my intent. (laughs) I'm only joking, of course, but uh, it was, that was really, really kind of you. And and as I said, very fluid. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe one other, you know, question, Hank, Um, you know, when you talk about learning from mistakes, are, are there, in methods or like, how how do you make sure the learning sticks in terms of not repeating mistakes and then helping lessons or ideas spread so others can learn from a mistake somebody else made? Well,
1: just in learning in general, at least at, at, at iPlace, we have a pretty extensive professional development department. We have a great learning management system. I think there over 400 courses in it. Uh, some are mandatory for new employees, but uh, we're you know, always encouraging uh, people to take the courses and our professional development team, one of the best thing is when people take courses, they follow up with them for about six months to make sure they're implementing the courses because you know I, I do agree that um, in, in my experience, probably the biggest problem with training is you learn great things and then you go back and just do your job the way you've always done it. And you don't really implement the, the, the things you've learned so uh, at least at high place, we have a big emphasis on implementation and follow- up by a professional development team
0: and then there's uh, do I remember right that there was a mechanism for sharing lessons learned within the company as well or is that my mistake? <laughs> I thought that I thought this had been mentioned
1: um, well, you know we we you know the knowledge sharing sessions, we have the little mini sessions that people can can talk about. I'm not sure if we have a a formal process, but we um you know we we do encourage people over and over and over. You know, one of the things about communication in a company is you can't say it too many times <laughs> because you know, there's always new employees, there's always people who aren't paying attention, there are always people who Forget so, you know a lot of our uh, marketing communications is internally focused, and you know these sort of messages are, you know, we hammer on them.
0: Yeah. So that reinforcement and the the leading by example, you know, thank you, Hank, for doing that um, and sharing with us today. And then, you know, quickly about iPlace. You know, you mentioned that you're the only U.S. based employee? Where, where are your customers um, based and, and what types of companies do you serve? So uh, so we have, you know,
1: as I said, about 950 employees. We're working on five continents and we've placed people in 30 countries. I would say the bulk of our clients are in the US, but a lot of them are global. So we have uh, one of our bigger clients, we work with them in eight different countries. And um, you know what our business is is recruitment process outsourcing. So companies outsource our part of their talent acquisition function to iPlace, and most cases that means that we provide big teams of recruiters for them. But uh, you know we also have clients where we do uh, you know research and administration all around the re- you know, recruiting process. Uh, one of the things we specialize in is in these large hiring projects. So if you're a company that has to hire hundreds of people, and you had to do it in two or three months. You don't want to hire a team of 50 recruiters internally. And then when the project's over, let them go. So they'll hire us, we'll put on a massive team. And when the project's over, hopefully we'll get more work. Sometimes we sometimes the project's over and the project's over. But um, you know, that's one of the things that we can really do for companies, and we can do that in countries all over the all over the world.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's great. Thank you for sharing a little bit about that, Hank. I'll make sure there's a link to the website in the show notes. Again, we've been joined by uh, Hank Levine, CEO of High um, Place USA, global recruitment process outsourcing company. Hank, thank you so much for what you're doing and uh, for sharing so much here with us today. I really appreciate it.
1: And Mark, this, this was fun. So th- thank you very much for
0: inviting me. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks. Well, thanks again to Hank for being a wonderful guest today. To learn more about him and iPlaceUSA, look for links in the show notes, or you can go to markraben.com slash mistake219. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.